Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm very excited to do Yet another One Health initiative episode. If, you, if you're unfamiliar with One Health because you're new to the show, don't you worry. We're going to be talking a, a bit about that. Uh, but just the general uh, uh, gist for any of you newcomers, uh, it's, it's, it's really just a, a, a organization that I believe in, but also I just think is really valuable for you guys, the listeners, to see how so many different fields of research connect together uh, in in ways that you wouldn't make the connection on your own. And, and just seeing the the vast complexity um, uh, that that goes into solving each of life's problems and all of the stuff that science is doing that's running in the background all of the time that, that, the, that the public uh, generally isn't privy to at all. And so it's just been a really fun, uh, cool insight into that world. And today's guest is uh, is especially involved in interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary uh, work and thinking about things in this in this way in terms of uh, environment and sustainability and um, uh, rural farming and and the the many other topics that we've talked about uh, regarding the One Health initiative in the past. So I'm excited to be talking from the University of Tennessee in knoxville dave ader is joining me today thank you dave yeah no problem it's great to be here this is day two we tried yesterday i was so excited dave is like dave you're gonna be a really memorable guest i do one of these a week um you know so sometimes they blur together a little bit but (laughs) you're already like close to hero status for me (laughs) because you live in a cabin a self-sustaining ish cabin in the woods we're trying it's incredible (laughs) and the only thing that you don't have is perfect broadband internet you still (laughs) had internet just not quite strong enough for the the incredible quality uh, that I provide on this show, so <laughs> we decided to scrap it after some connection issues and uh, and record here in the university. So thanks for thanks for being accommodating, and no also thanks for showing me your cabin. I'm so yeah. inspired. At first, before we get into your work, let's just tell the audience about uh, about the cabin. This is a dream uh-huh. of mine. I want to know how you did it. I always, you know, when I was younger, I was like, I'm, I'm from, uh, I'm from a smallish, there's a city, La Crosse, Wisconsin. It's maybe mm-hmm. like 40, yeah. 50,000 people when schools and, 
in and smaller than that when I was growing up and I'm from like a smaller uh, suburb outside of it. And, but nothing but farmland between like two and a half hours to Madison, two and a half hours to Minneapolis. Um, and so growing up, I was like, I'm going to go to the big apple. I'm going to live yeah, in a right. big city. And then became a comedian, did all that stuff. Been to a zillion big cities, love them, had a great time, but so often especially since covid i'm like you know what cabin in the woods off the grid i'm doing it and off the grid always feels like something that i see some person on like instagram is trying to do and i'm like that's not real no one really (laughs) does that so tell tell us all about it yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a great chance to just sort of test out different ideas. Really, um, I'm very fortunate that I have family that has a little bit of land here outside of Knoxville, and so when I moved here, uh, my brother's farming it, and but there's places that are forested on the land, and I thought, you know, I I'd really like to try that to just sort of see if I can build myself just a little cabin right in the forest there, and and see what that looks like. I mean, part of the inspiration was I do a lot of work internationally and, and I work with rural populations everywhere and some pretty simple accommodations that people have. I, don't know, I was in Peace Corps in, in, in Zambia. I lived in a little mud hut and you know, it's seeing that it's pretty simple, but yet it can be pretty comfortable and pretty easy. And But uh, seeing if that's possible in the U.S. and seeing if I could do that here in Knoxville and what that looks like with a full-time job at the university. and so, but it's a, it's been a really good experience to try to do it. So I just kind of got the idea that I would try. And I've spent the last three or four years trying to uh, build an acceptably comfortable cabin. I, I do, like like you said, I'm not connected to the electric grid. I have a small generator if I need electricity, um, charge a laptop, charge a, a hotspot for Wi-Fi, um, you know, those kinds of basic things, just a basic well water and septic system. Um, big garden to try to grow some vegetables, things like that. Uh, it's, 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 it was supposed to be kind of the idea was just, oh, it's like one of these little tiny houses that people are doing these days, right? It's just, I'll just build a little tiny house. But I was trying to source a lot of the materials from the land. So the wood, the rocks, those kinds of things. And, and I found some really great resources. And so I, I didn't want to kind of skip out on the resources. So I, I just went with what I had and it, it got a little bit a little bit bigger than a tiny house, but it's uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's definitely unique. Um, people either think it's really cool or think I'm really crazy, um, but uh, most people think it's really interesting. <sighs> Too many questions already. Uh, right. All right, you sourced material. I didn't know that part. You sourced the material from the land. Well, like a you, lot of it. A lot like of it. You yeah. Cut, you're like cutting down trees to build your cabin with. So a couple of it was really kind of serendipitous. A couple of large oak trees fell down a large hickory tree so some some big hardwoods fell um, wow so I, so I didn't cut i didn't cut any live trees down so don't oh i'm not I, that, no yeah. i'm not that's, <laughs> that, that, that wasn't the direction i was it was it was, it was in awe not out <laughs> no, of right. sadness for the trees no no and so they had fallen down so there was like yeah. a lot of great wood and so i thought well you know it's expensive to buy giant oak planks and oak <laughs> beams you know but if it's free it's right here it just take time to process it and takes time to kind of put it up and let it dry and so, you know, but I started in, that's part of the first step was collecting a lot of this wood, letting it sit up in the barn for a couple of years, drying out, all that kind of stuff. So, but yeah, that's, it takes a lot of time. You want to talk about processing an oak beam. You know, I, I spent hundreds of hours <laughs> on, a, on a chainsaw, right? Me and a chainsaw for a long time. That's so, amazing. Yeah. You, there is no, 
<laughs> I mean, I used to do some construction and stuff and and um I I uh I had uh I I am so lazy. It, it, it's <laughs> it, I can I can just think of the excuses that I would come up with. I I would just be I would be year 4 I'd be like, "You know, the wood's probably not dry enough yet." <laughs> Better right. give it a few more weeks. Uh, that, that, I would make up a zillion excuses. Yeah, there were definitely days I had where it was like, I don't want to be doing this. Right? <laughs> it wasn't. And so I kind of joke about it being not exactly fun the whole time, right? It was, yeah, uh, of course. It was, but now I love the fact that it's finished and that's, you know, be able to like be comfortable and live there and, and you know, you're cooking yourself some dinner inside this really unique cabin. It's a lot of fun. That's a it's, a it's a pain. It was a long process, so yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but those are the rewarding parts, right? right. That right. the the bit of the painfulness. It, do you do you notice when you're in the in the cabin? Do you notice like uh, little areas that you messed up a little bit? Oh yeah, that oh, and, <laughs> and because I did all of it myself, like I have, I can tell you about each piece and where each tree came from and all of that. It's amazing. And, but it's yeah, I I, I constantly I'm like yeah, I, I would have done it differently if I was doing it again. Right. And I don't wow. think I'm going to try to do it ever again. And in, in the same way I did, it was hard. It's, and, and you have to think about the terms of just the labor. It takes a lot of work to lift a log. So you have to think about, <laughs> you know, if you're doing it yourself, how do you do that? Right. You have to figure out pulley systems and ropes and try to like, you know, lift up heavy wood and things like, cause you're by yourself. So you my did, brother it. did help. Yeah. <laughs> I have a brother that came to help yourself. some, but a lot of it was you, just doing it yeah, you by didn't, yourself. Oh, you didn't do like the six pack and a friend move. Like, I tried. I tried that. Like, hey, I that gets came. old. Let's have a right? weekend, and yeah, they stop answering so your calls. <laughs> yeah, <Right>? yeah. <laughs> right. Well, because you bill it as I. Because I've I've seen people. I've seen uh, there. There's this guy from my high school that uh, that's uh, the. Yeah, I don't I mostly follow him because out of concern it seems like he's <laughs> he's building some sort of militia um mm. but <laughs> but he also but he's also and he's a con too he always has like right. a new con going yeah. and uh but I'll I'll see him he builds incredible stuff like that cuz I'll, I'll see him he he like puts a thing out on Facebook to people like, Hey, come and get a workout doing this and that. Like he really sells yeah. it like a training, sure. the personal training he's going to do for you. <laughs> Just right. like I'll him you telling you how to build his house. For <laughs> it's, you. It's, like cross, yeah, it's like yeah. CrossFit, but on the farm. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's the move. All right. So you make the, Man, this might be just the cabin episode. I I hope that we get to your research, but I'm not I'm not totally confident we're going to finish talking about your cabin in 90 minutes. Um uh, I think it's you, related. You, you it's get, related? Oh, we'll get to it, but I still <laughs> we're not done here. I have okay, so you you source you you go you go around collecting wood. You dry the wood. You got chainsaws right. going here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got you got pulley systems. Yep. That's some <laughs> okay. Hit me with something else. What else are you? What else are you sourcing? Um, rock. So it's a, it has a rock base. So, you know the, the the whole bottom wall is big rocks that I had to dig out of the fields and gather no. up from the woods and what that. So and no basement. 
No, no not because they don't like. Well, does Tennessee do basements? I don't. There's a lot some, of times yeah. in the south, they don't. Yeah, right. Yeah, a lot of crawl spaces, not always full basements, but there's some. But yeah, I mean that would have required excavation and that kind of stuff. And like I said, I, I didn't really. I was just going in with it as like a little, <laughs> a little cabin. Let's just kind of build something that'll that'll get by. Uh, uh, what did the what were the plan? Did you did you have anyone look at your plans or blueprints or anything? Did you have um, you had blueprints, right? Did you or what? Sure. Your, yeah. Let's let's of? say that. Let's go with that. Yeah, for sure. No, and I definitely had some folks that I know that are you know some engineers and folks that work in you know, civil engineering and stuff that uh, took a look at it and see some of the, the specs on it and what it would what it would take and all that kind of the angles and different things like that, but. Yeah. But then most of it, I mean, it's like I said, it's pretty simple stuff. I mean, there are definitely where I work around the world, there's lots of people who have never had any kind of education and can't even read that are building their own accommodations. Right. And I thought, well, you know, out of solidarity, you know, it's kind of an experiment. Right. Is is it is it that impossible for for me to do it? I don't know. Is it what, what does it actually take to, to sort of build your own accommodation? And it, it takes a lot of time is what it comes down to. It takes a lot of time, it takes just a lot of labor. And, wow. But I really wanted to know that. I wanted that firsthand experience to say that, yeah, I, I tried it. it. This is what it actually takes. This is what it feels like to be spending a hundred hours on a chainsaw or whatever. Like I wanted to know what that was like so that, you know, I could then be one hand relate to other people that I'm working with, but also then I, you know, someone asked, it's like, well, yeah, the, I did it. This is what it took for me. And I can give some really specifics about what that, how that impacts, you know, your lifestyle and what it, what it takes to do that. Wow. Okay. Well, my dream is to live in a cabin in the woods that you built that I'm not, I'm not, I'm not touching it. I want to get the, I want to get, uh, I mean, that's the, the, that you have all the academic connections and can just walk into the engineering department and well, they must have nerded out over that. I said, <laughs> sure. I, I use the word nerd on the show and only a complimentary way, of course, yeah, it's yeah. a science podcast, but that must've been a thrill for them. Right. It's a different project, right? They might be thinking about plans about building some energy grid or some, you know, large scale bridge we're building. But then you come in with this like, hey, I've got this uh, on the farm. I'm building a cabin. What do you all think about it? And I think they kind of uh, I mean, it was I think it was fun. But at the same time, it's the, uh, pretty, pretty simple for them. And so I think that it was just kind of like, oh, this is cute. Look yeah. at this guy. He's doing a little clubhouse. And it's like, uh, sure. But it was it was fun. I mean, and there you know, people are very interested and people want to know what it's like and you know what it took and but it's really pretty just basic stuff so so before we get into kind of some of your inspiration and in cultures where where something like this is is commonplace uh in in terms of in terms of the perception when you when you start doing this like you know if if you know i kind of i some people are gonna think unabomber you know like, what, was, what's motivating this guy? Why would he want to do that? Right? What is this about? There's something wrong with right. him? Or, yeah, for sure. And I have colleagues that probably think I'm crazy. And you know, that's just the part of the game, I guess. You have to <laughs> convince them that it's kind of just an experiment, and the, I'm just, I just want to check it out and see. I mean, I, you know, it's part of learning, I guess. And I think we can all relate to that. You know, yeah, the science, science, academic community. You know, it's just an experiment. We're just trying to learn from it. So cool. Do you get do you get many visitors? Yeah. I mean, pre-COVID a lot more, obviously. And, yeah. you know, we would, uh, you know, have, have dinner on the farm or whatever. And we used to have chefs come out and they would, uh, you know, kind of do a f- farm dinner where they would prepare the food that we grew. 
and, you know, always give people a little tour of the project and see if they're curious about what I'm doing down there and stuff like that. But, uh, but now I live there full time. And so it's like, yeah, if you want to come over and see my house, it's fun. Amazing. I can't wait. I'm going to come see your house when I do pass it, through yeah. town. Yeah. Well, it's funny because everybody always says, well, when you travel, you should just put it on Airbnb. I'm like, right, I guess it could be in the future, but it's, it's still, I don't know, to the point where I think it would be very comfortable for people that have never been there. Like, you know, it takes, it's kind of quirky. It takes some, takes some thinking about how things work. And all, all the Airbnbs, I, I always, the first thing I do is I try to find the oddest ones okay. that, that okay. I can. <laughs> if, like I can stay in a place that has a nice like horseshoe collection on the wall, something like that. That's <laughs> right? what, that's what I get down with. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You You'd like find, this one. This would be for you. Oh yeah. I, I've stayed in tiny homes and stuff and, and, yeah. uh, uh, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm all about that. Um, I, I, uh. Um, yeah, actually last time I was through Knoxville, found an amazing state in a state in a yurt situation. Nice. I'm always, yeah. I'm always getting stuff like that. Um, well, the fun I, part for me is just like in terms of where I'm located is Knox, Knox County. I mean, East Tennessee is beautiful, but I can see the Smoky Mountain National Park from my bedroom window. That's amazing. Because it's, I'm up on a little bit of a hill and it looks just all the way across the valley. And so I can wake up and see the Smokies. Well, this is, I swear we'll get to your research, but this is, <laughs> this is, this is, uh, uh, you, you know, before COVID there was, uh, things were kind of heading this direction where tiny houses were like, you know, becoming a thing. People, sure. people would be flexing their tiny house on, right. on Instagram, the minimalist thing. It, it, it was refreshing to see as someone that, uh, you know, I was born in 1980s and I remember like the lifestyles of the rich and famous and MTV cribs and like right. kind of ridiculous um, mentality that, that was like the American dream at the time that I, I thought it was refreshing to see people parsing the things down as as someone who spent 17 years living on the road most of my belongings fit in a car right. Right. um and uh and then but it was still it seemed like kind of you know a novelty and a little bit odd or whatever and then covid hit and right. everyone's like i need a cabin in the woods Right. Uh, I, I'm actually surprised that we haven't run out of cabins in the woods. I'll, I'll <laughs> so I had to, I had to build my going. own for that reason, you know. So what 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 was the response like from uh, all, all of the people that that thought you were a uh, lunatic pre COVID right. were probably the tables turned it, a little bit, a little bit. And I kind of had to smile about that because it, it was very much the conversation that they used to tell me you know, you're, you're young ish. You, you, you know, you're, you have a job, you should be living in a place where there's a lot of other youngish people doing fun things and, you know, much more of a social life. And, you know, these were people coming from large metropolitan areas in the U S I mean, for colleagues of mine and friends that are in LA or New York and places along those lines, a lot of DC folks, they say, you know, why aren't you living in DC? And then they kind of, there's a little bit, you know, just in, you know, in jest, but they would say, you know, you're kind of weird. Like, why would you want and choose to live out there? But then talking to them during COVID, you know, it, there was a lot of mental health struggles with people being stuck in their studio apartment in New York and they couldn't leave. And even if they could leave, there wasn't anything open anyways. And so all of the fun and the excitement and the glitz and glamour of the urban center kind of went away pretty quick. And I think, you know, a lot of them were you say like I, I I'm really 
suffering here. This is, this is not fun. And I said, well, nothing's really changed for me. I just got back from a walk out in the forest and I picked some vegetables for dinner and it's pretty healthy in that sense. And so there was some back and forth about that. They, they can, I think, see more now some of the benefits um, to, to living you know, outside of an urban center. But I think we've seen that in terms of just as in the U.S., there's a lot of changes to where people are living and the housing market changes and where people want to live and what, what's become valuable as, as people are thinking about working remotely and, you know, lifestyle is important. So I think a lot of people are shifting the way they think about it for sure. And I know I've had those conversations with people. Plus with the, the availability of the internet and every, which, right. which and, and unless you're recording this incredibly important podcast, <laughs> uh, ge- generally you're able to yeah. stay in contact with it yeah. and get whatever service that you Right. Uh, that you need. You were on a generator uh, yeah. yesterday. What's the, what's the, like, I I don't know if I can convey how lazy I am uh, to <laughs> you. I, I like, if I, if sometimes I'll be on the couch and if I, if there's not a power outlet that I can reach, then like I guess the phone's gonna die. I guess it's <laughs> uh, and what what's the what's the electricity situation in your place? Right, and so that's essentially it's always how do you charge your 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 things that you need to use, right? Your laptops, your your devices, your phones, and their battery. I mean, it's just a matter of charging them, right? And so, I mean, I kind of equate it to working in a lot of places where we work, where we've gone through this sort of development process where you know rural villages had didn't they didn't get the roadways they didn't get the telegraph lines they didn't get the landline phones that that was a long process where we put those lines out to rural communities in the u.s because that's the technology that we had and so we funded these lines out and so when you know we you're from the 80s when the internet started it was dial up you know and i don't know you can probably remember that and it, it you had to be connected to a landline Right. Mm-hmm. But, but now we don't need that. Right. It's easy to put up a cell phone tower in some remote area. Um, and so you don't necessarily need all of that infrastructure. You just need some way to charge your phone now. Um, and that's done really easily with a little a little solar panel and a car battery. Right. And you can you can charge all kinds of stuff off of a car battery that's charged by a solar panel. And so the technology is available that it's very easy to to not have to worry about how to charge your phone and your laptop. Like that's pretty easy. To do and and if it's a matter of like having a bunch of lights on and things, yeah, I mean, there's simple generators that you can get that when you need it to be on, you can you can have it on. If you just need to charge batteries for a little bit, charge batteries or use a solar panel or all these, all these other alternative options out there. It's some of the larger things that that you know in Tennessee we would think of, in Wisconsin you would think about like things like heat and HVAC systems and a lot of that that we we use generally we use like a lot of electricity for, right? So like, obviously I don't have air conditioning in my cabin. I don't have an HVAC system. I have a wood stove. So in the winter time, I, I have to use firewood. Um, you can cook on it. You also can use it to heat your house. It's a pretty small space. So it's pretty easy to heat up a pretty small space. Um, and so there isn't really that, if you start, if I really start thinking about it, I don't really have that much need for electricity, right? Obviously it gets darker earlier in the winter time. So you want some lights on, but there's also like point of view. So I don't need to light up the entire house when I'm just sitting reading a book. All I need is that light right there on the book, right? And there's so many different ways to accomplish that. 
right? From battery powered lights to, you know, uh, just small LED style. I mean, that are run off panels. I mean, it's, it's not that complicated anymore to set this up. Um, so yeah, so I don't, I, it helps you reevaluate how much electricity you really do need. Um, and it, to me, it's not that much. Uh, I think the biggest complaint that people have besides sort of like an HVAC system is fridge and freezers. People are always concerned about having a freezer. And I just, I kind of just, I don't have a freezer. I don't have anything frozen at my house. So if I, you know, if I really want ice, I'd have to go buy a bag of ice and use a cooler. But once again, there's refrigerated coolers that you can get. There are small mini sized freezers that you can get that can be charged and be run off batteries if you want. I just haven't really got to the point where I need it or care. You so you don't have a refrigerator. I, I do not, no. Oh man, I just tapped out. I just tapped out of this deal. <laughs> uh, no refrigerator. Wait, what? Okay. I mean, what do, we, what do we do with refrigerators for? Like leftovers, <sighs> right? Question. We'll just cook, cook what you're going to eat, and that's it, right? Then you that's you don't need a refrigerator unless you want to. I don't eat ice cream either. Like I'm just not a big ice cream fan, and so like I don't really need. I don't use frozen dishes. I cook my food that I harvest. So yeah, it, it's like it would just be for leftovers, really. And, and it's like, well. Don't, don't make leftovers, right? That's a pretty simple solution or, you know, have a dog that'll eat it or pigs or a chicken or a compost pile. I mean, when we talk about waste, when we say food waste, we're mostly referring to it's not good for people anymore, but it's good for so many other things that, you know, so what it's not good for people. It's good for the worms. It's good for the chickens. It's good for the pigs. What do you got? You got some critters? Oh yeah. Yeah. We definitely chickens and ducks and sheep and. Awesome. I'm back like on that. board. Maybe I don't need a refrigerator <laughs> that much. Interesting. Right? Fresh, fresh, egg, fresh eggs with some fresh spinach. Yeah. What do you? So you I don't need to refrigerate eggs. You don't need to refrigerate butter. Incredible. I I, I stayed in this place in in Jamaica for a bit, um, where it was incredible. It was a it was a small home, and most of it was made out of cinder blocks like mm-hmm. kind of like decorated cinder blocks right. or whatever is beautiful so it was all um it, it was all like open uh it, you know you could you could see through every wall the the bedroom was wood so you could close it right. and everything but right. everything else was open it was on the beach it was it was absolutely incredible and it, it was like hmm i think i could I feel like I could live here forever. And then you like, ah, I don't know how much I like sleeping under a mosquito net. And I, right. do, do you have a, you have, you have some days where you're like, whew, I'm, I'm missing a few, like uh, you, you miss central air or, uh, or <sighs> what, what do you, what, what's the, what's the heat situation? I have a fireplace, a little wood stove. Okay. All right. So I'm, I, I, I'm not that particularly concerned with being cold i prefer the heat over the cold anyway so um like summertime like i could put a, I have a battery powered fan that puts out a lot of a lot of wind i mean so if i really need a fan that's fine that's easy to do um i don't really need air conditioning I, and besides i mean i have really thick walls it's it's really the thermal the thermal value of my walls is pretty good and so um and it's shaded because i have trees around me i'm in the woods and so if, if I were to like keep my windows closed and things in the summertime, it maintains about 65 degrees in my house. So it's not hot. It's not like swelteringly hot or anything in there. Um, mm. It's really pretty, pretty calm and, you know, pretty good climate inside the house. So it's not a problem for me. I mean, it's not for everybody. That's the other part about it. Um, a lot of people would never choose to live in that way. 
Um, but you know, it's quiet, right? I don't, I don't have any neighbors that I can see from my house. It's very quiet. The only neighbors I have are the critters that live in the forest. Um, and people wonder, they often, that's kind of one of the comments I'll get is like, aren't you worried about the critters in the forest? And I'm like, I know what's there. I know who lives in the forest. I know what's there. There's a lot of squirrels. There's a lot of possum, right? I don't have any bear. I have very few deer, some occasional skunk, occasional raccoon. So it's not that complicated. There's nothing there that's going to get me, right? I'm not afraid of anything in the woods because there's nothing there that's going to hurt me. I'm not food for anything in the forest. Yeah. So no, no, that's a selling point. Um, It's very quiet. It's very peaceful in that sense. So Wonderful. I think think we're going to have... Hmm. I wonder. I, I've had, <laughs> I bet three people listening or watching this. I bet three people ten years from now they live in a cabin in the woods because they, they heard this. It's inspiring. I feel like I have a nothing fool. but positive things to say about it. it. You know, it's really it's very simple. Um, it didn't really cost me that much to build. Um, you can always add more and more luxurious items to it if you really want to. It can be more comfortable as you go if you really want to. Um, and the reason. I don't have a fridge because I just haven't put the effort into getting one. It's not that it's impossible. There's, there's propane fridges. There's fridges that run a very low electrical requirements. There's, there's, you know, there's stuff for sailboats, there's stuff for small, tiny homes. I mean, the, 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 the appliances and the technologies out there for sure. I'm just busy. I have a job, right? Like I just haven't really gotten to that point where I'm, you know, working on, on that. I'll get there. Just not yet. What's the close situation. You got a washboard or what? <laughs> sure, you can always do it that way. I mean, that's why that's why laund- I mean, that's why laundromats exist, right? Not everybody, even in cities, not everybody has a washer and dryer. I'm oh, you go to the you go it. to the laundromat. Sure, oh, okay, or just, okay. Or go to my you know family's house where they let you do it for free. I see, I see. I I had really fanciful images of you using a washboard. <laughs> old, old school. I do have one, but yeah, I don't have enough time for that. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right, all right. Well, let's get into your background. Um, <laughs> and and believe it or not, audience, this is actually like it, it's it's related. It uh, is. Yeah. It, it's all related. Um, so yeah, tell, tell people about yourself, your background, um, how you got into, uh, I'll, I'll let you go. Sure. So I, I work a lot in the sort of realm of what you might call food systems. Um, it's more of a more recent term, I suppose. Um, it really the, on the very like basic level, there's a lot of people in the world right now. And, you know, I don't have to know anything about you as a person to know that you need certain things to continue to exist as a person. Right? I don't need to know your anything about you, any sort of social category that you can come up with. I don't need to know any of that. If I if I know that you're a human being and that you're you want to continue to stay alive, right? You have to breathe. You need clean air, right? You need water because you're mostly water, so you need to replenish that water. And you have to have nutrients, and they have to be specific kinds of nutrients in order for you to reproduce your cells, right? And that's really the basis of of a lot of the work that we're doing is how do we make sure that people have those basic things. Right? It doesn't matter what religion you are or whatever you believe. It doesn't matter anything about that. It doesn't matter where you come from or what country your, your ancestors came from or whatever. It doesn't make, that's nothing to do with it. And that's kind of further along the conversation. Um, but, you know, I know that you need certain things to survive and that you have to do that regularly, right? That you can't go too many days without taking in more water or taking in more nutrients because then you won't survive. And so it's, that's, that's sort of the basis of it. And so then you start to examine, well, what does that mean for all of us? on the planet, right? Where are we at? And you just start to look at kind of where we're at with those basic things. 
And, and well, we're, we're not doing great in the sense that there's a lot of people everywhere. Now, we're not just talking about some, some uh, far away places, but everywhere in every country, there are people that have a lot less food or nutrients available to them than other people. Right. And so there's inherently this, this inequality that exists. Now, whether it's just in access or quality or quantity, right, you can start to analyze this in a lot of different ways, but that's sort of just the basis of, of where we're at. And um, I kind of got involved because I was just growing up very interested in, in, in different cultural differences in food. I was very interested in the ways that people around the world grow and, and eat and create these wonderful dishes. Um, and I just was just from, I'm just a forest boy from Appalachia and I just wanted to see what else was out there. So any opportunities that I could find to, to go abroad and to learn about what was happening and what, what it, what it was like there. I, I wanted to taste the food. I wanted to, I wanted to eat the insects and see what that was like instead of just reading about it in magazines or whatever. Like I wanted to experience that. Um, and, 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 and I did, and I realized I learned a lot, all right, along the way. And I realized that some of those um, what, what I thought of as a young kid would be really, really hard to do, right? Oh, living in a mud hut would be really hard and, you know, eating an insect or eating a snake would be really terrible. And, but now that I've done things like that and, and I've realized that physical part isn't that hard, right? Using an outhouse, it's not that big deal. When I was in the Peace Corps, I lived in Zambia, a very rural area. Um, we had an outhouse. Everybody had the little out. If you were lucky, you had an outhouse. A lot of people just walked out into the bush and used that is their toilet, right? But um, some people had outhouses, little latrines, you dig a pit, you build a little structure on top, very simple process. Um, and, and that's what people used. And, and a lot of my friends would say, how did you stand that? How, how did you survive? And it's like, that's not, that wasn't the challenge. The challenge was a lot of the sort of um, social, educational, political differences and seeing some of those inequalities being reproduced by some of these social and political situations. That was some of the harder part to deal with. Um, you know, seeing your neighbors that are helping to take care of you, seeing them go hungry during the hungry season and knowing that all of your family and friends in the U.S. are gorging themselves on Thanksgiving dinner, right? And knowing that those two things are happening at exactly the same time for people that you care about, right? I care about my neighbors in Zambia, but I was also cared about my family and friends and just knowing that they're in very different situations in that exact same moment, right? That was some of the harder things to try to, to try to work out emotionally and mentally. Um, but, you know, using a latrine as a bathroom is really easy. You get used to it really quickly. Hmm. So it's sort of those kinds of things that you learn. And so as I, as I was going, um, I came, you know, back to the U.S. So end up at uh, Penn State University, at, PhD program there, really looking at rural development, trying to understand, just like, once again, back to these really basic stuff, how do we make sure that everybody has enough food? We generally call that food security. Um, are people secure in the amount of food that they have, right? And is it, is it enough quantity-wise? Is it enough quality-wise? Is it appropriate food for your age range, right? So like one of the things we, we could ask is, you know, obviously people need food to survive, but do all people need the same food at the same times? Well, no, we're different, right? 80-year-olds need different types of foods than eight-month-olds, right? Eight-month-olds are going through different transitions than 80-year-olds. And so there's you get down into some of the details about what people might need and when they might need it um, and for what purpose. And so there's a lot of conversations that could be had about this. But you know, I mean, that's the reality is that we have these needs as people and, and how do we satisfy those nutrient requirements that we need? Um, you know, is it just calories? Are we talking about just basic energy? 
just carbs, carbohydrate, calories? Are we talking about proteins? Um, are we talking about certain micronutrients? Is it a vitamin A deficiency? Is it a zinc deficiency? You know, what are those things that that uh, that we need? And there's so many examples of this that you know you could point out. Like a, a, a you know relatively recent example that I like to use in class sometimes is about you know and there was a tsunami in Japan in 2011. Um, knocked out the Fukushima nuclear reactor there, had a lot of problems with uh, you know, uh, radiation into the ocean. Well, okay, great. But at the same time, that had an <laughs> impact. I mean, it's not a great story, but <laughs> yeah. it's like, that's terrible. Yeah. But at the same time, what you don't realize is that then right. the price of iodine goes up because iodine pills are supposed to help with radiation sickness or prevent you from getting radiation uh. poisoning. And so the price of iodine changes. So then you have a poor country like Cambodia who never had iodized salt and in their salt size, they collect water out of the ocean, they dry it, they take the salt and that's their table salt, but it was never iodized. And so they had a lot of iodine deficiency in their diet. Well, then, you know, different organizations came in, they bought them these potassium iodate sprayers and they would spray these big piles of salt and it would become iodized. And that would then give the whole population a little bit of iodine. And so that you know, it was an essential nutrient that they need to develop. Children need it for the brains to develop all those kinds of things. Mm. And so now all of a sudden, because there's an earthquake thousands of miles away, that has no really, there's no real connection to Cambodia. The price of iodine goes up. They can't afford to iodate their salt anymore. So now you have an iodine deficiency in children again, because there isn't iodine in the salt in the market. And so people aren't consuming it, right? And so there's this like real, it's like shrug out, knock on effect that happens. Mm. And that's sort of the essential part of these conversations when you talk about One Health. It's saying these things are much larger systems than we've traditionally thought about. And so we have to consider these, these sort of really long supply chains and these really complex systems where something way far away happens and that has this, these knockoff effects and affect people in very different circumstances that would never, we would never put those ideas together, but they're connected. And, and we have to understand how do we then address that? Mm. Yeah, so it's these kinds of ideas. And that's, so that's what we work on a lot here at the university and other universities. I mean, we are trying to have the supply chain engineers thinking about these supply chains, also thinking about, you know, the people with nutrition thinking about well, what are the nutrients that are needed and people in food science talking about how do you apply that and get that into diets of people. And so you have these, different people in different departments focusing on very different topics that happen to be related. And how do you get them into a room together? How do you get the public to understand that we're talking about these much larger, more complex ideas? And so that's, that's the sort of day-to-day job that we're doing here at the university. And that's, and that's kind of the gist of, of uh, right. One Health, uh, the One right. Health Initiative. And, and with, with also, a, and it doesn't seem like maybe as much a part of your work, but uh it seems like the One Health Initiative has has quite a bit of emphasis on um, uh, uh, zoonosis and, and yep. disease and right. uh, human impact and on uh, and biodiversity's loss. Absolutely, uh, uh, biodiversity losses impact on uh, disease spread and right. and uh, that sort of thing. We just did a. Um, I, I have another podcast called Mind Under Matter. It's a it's a comedy podcast, but I've, cause I'm always blabbing about science that uh, ends up being a big part of the show, too. And we just did a St. Patrick's Day episode and I was looking through a little bit of the history and then uh, and it's it, it's actually the, the national 
it's the national holiday that's celebrated in more nations than like any other like country's right. national holiday. Every <laughs> everyone celebrates St. Patrick's Day, but I so you know I found myself looking into um, uh, the potato famine a, a yeah. little bit, which I had uh, heard about brief. I think the Michael Pollan's "The Botany of Desire" years right. and years ago, or whatever, and and uh, and. And that was when you kind of talked about like, okay, are we just filling, do we just need enough calories to survive? That was, that was an aspect of it that I hadn't realized was, was there was essential vitamins that you couldn't just substitute by just throwing a bunch of corn at the problem or. Right. Exactly. And right. Potatoes the same way. I mean, potatoes will fill your belly, but they lack certain things that you might need. Mm-hmm. And it, it differs, like we said, it differs who you are. I mean, where are you living, right? I mean, if you're living in a hot climate and it's, there's the tropics, maybe you don't need as much calories to stay warm um, versus someone who's living, you know, towards the Arctic, for example. Mm-hmm. And what's available to you, right? Because then people will get into the, some of the cultural issues, right? Like I can grow loads and loads of beets, but if I just brought a whole bunch of beets to hungry students at the campus and said, Hey, there's some students that need some food. And you brought a whole pile of beets to them. That's not going to solve the problem, right? They don't have a place to cook it. They don't know how to cook it. They've never eaten it before. They're not interested in eating it. And so is, is it, it technically it, it could be part of a solution, but it may not really be that important to do that because it might not work at all. Cause there's all these other factors that go into whether someone's going to actually eat what it is that's available to them. Yeah, you aren't just not solving the problem. You're also not being invited back to the parties anymore. <laughs> right. Just showing right. you the beat guy. Like, yeah. does he does he do that every time? Yep, every time. <laughs> yeah. Buckets of beets everywhere. Buckets of beets. <laughs> Don't invite him unless you're low on beets. Right. Um, well, this is we've had um, uh, entomologists on on yeah. the show talking about um, one of one of the episodes. In particular, I had uh, two entomologists and and a person who um, has uh, uh, Brooklyn bugs in uh, right. uh, 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 so bad with names, but anyway, a really terrific episode that I recommend viewers go back and, and listen to. But the guy's whole mission is to get people into eating insects. And cho- if, if, if I'll I'll send you some some pictures of, of this afterwards, but if if, uh, if you go if listeners go on Instagram or something to Brooklyn Bugs, you see you see the dishes that he's making with insects right. in them, and it's it's like high end, like right. very ritzy culinary stuff that you probably wouldn't even know had insects on it if no one told right. you and. Right. And but the the as an American, typically uh, some or or at least from uh, being from the Midwest, there's I would have a difficult time selling the people that I knew from the same area that hadn't traveled much or been outside of it on the idea of eating, making a meal out of out of insects. Right. Whereas yeah. in, in many areas, it's it's certainly not uncommon uh, to have that. Or I had uh, I had Herman Ponser um, uh, from Duke University on recently. He wrote a book called Burn um, about the evolution of human metabolism and mm-hmm. and uh, studies the Hansa. Hamza people. We'll say that. Let's just go yeah. with it. 
Um, and, uh, and when we were talking about, you know, they'll, they'll come across to hive, uh, and jackpot, you know, now they get honey and climb risking life and limb to climb all the way up and grab this beehive and toss it down. And, and they're scooping up. You can see they like, uh, there's David Attenborough documentaries where, where right. you can see this happening. They're just the, they, they don't even bother like smoking the bees out or anything, just scooping. Can't wait to, but he's, he was telling me, They'll just eat bowls of honey as a meal and like mm. not not just as a meal, but just like what a great day this was. I just right. I got to eat three bowls of, of, <laughs> of honey today. With little insect bits in it mixed in, you know, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's a, but you you try to take that somewhere else. And it's whereas whereas maybe those I, I I'm I'm sure there's a lot of American food that they would happily ad, adapt to, but but I I don't know. The, you offer you offer someone a Big Mac and maybe uh, uh, instead of their bowl of honey, and maybe they're like, "Oh, I, w- I couldn't touch that thing." Sure, absolutely. I mean, we're we're not culturally North America is not so into insects, right? And that's that's changing. I think that we're seeing a lot more um, products being made. It's a lot easier for people to stomach cricket powder as like a protein supplement in their smoothie or in their you know energy bars or whatever they have for their workout. It's easier for them to stomach the fact that it's like proteins coming from crickets, which are, you know, they're, they're producing now industrially in old warehouses and things and sort of concentrated small areas um, using agri- other agricultural waste and things. So once again, it's part of this larger system because even, you know, cricket waste often referred to as frass, right? It's, it's, you know, insect waste that can be used in soil as a soil amendment as like worm, worm castings. I mean, these are things that people add to the soil as a good nutrients for your soil. Yeah. So it's not, there isn't waste, right? That the concept of that we have waste, we have to figure out better ways of putting it into a larger sort of circular economy where everything has value. It's just figuring out where it needs to go and, and who can use it and what can use it and how do we use it, right? And so that's part of this whole challenge and it's fun. I mean, it's an interesting challenge. It's just the fact that it's, that we're really, it's addressing a, a serious need where there are people that don't have enough food. Right. They're 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 not to the point where they're comfortable with tomorrow. They know that they're going to have meals. And it's not just because they're refugees in some camp somewhere. It's because where they live, there's a very limited supply of uh, high quality, um, nutritious foods for them. Mm. So, you know, it's thinking about that. So it's it's a fun, interesting kind of intellectual challenge. But the reality is it's a very serious thing that's connected to real people's lives and, and their futures. So we do have to take it serious, but at the same time, it's, it's like, yeah, cool. How can we grow crickets in this old warehouse? And what kind of cool meals can we come up with with cricket powder that's going to be you know, part of people's diets in the future? It's harder for Americans to just like see a, a water beetle or something and just eat it directly. Yeah. Um, but but they can be tasty. I mean, if you thought, think about like the cicadas last summer here, they had the big you know cicada boom in that, that year. And a lot of people were talking about what kinds of things could you make? from a cicada? Could you eat it? Do you roast it? Can you saute it? A lot of people were very squeamish about it, but other people really took it to heart and thought about what, how you could eat this, 
this protein-rich source of natural food that just comes up out of the ground every few years. Also, there's psilocybin in cicadas, too. I've heard that, too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe uh, another motivating uh, factor uh, for people, I'm sure. Well, that's the thing. You need to find it. it, it from my perspective, you need to find inventive ways. <laughs> like, uh, you know, it's a, it, it, it's the barrier isn't, the mouth it's the sensibilities <laughs> you right. know it, it's it's the in in culture's impact on that i i mean right. i i told uh it, you know the brooklyn bug guy who's trying to make all these wonderful dishes and and you know you're you're, you're in brooklyn and i'm i'm sure lots of uh if you're in Brooklyn, the, sure, this is like, oh, cool. There's a we can go in this right. fancy restaurant and eat insects. But your average population, I was like, you, it, it's you say the protein powder. That's how you, that's how you do it. Because the wellness people, you give them something right. like weird sounding. They think it works better because they discovered it themselves. They're in on this other thing that they then they can tell people about. Like, oh, well, I just have. You know, I'm. How did I get jacked? Well, it was the cricket powder. Cricket powder, right? Right. That's that's. So there's like a zillion different ways to sell people on on things because it's you never. Uh, you, I I was uh, uh, I I was talking with uh, 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 I I was I was saying beforehand I was talking with Robert Sapolsky recently, but he he shared a story. Or maybe it was someone else shared a story. There was uh, an anthropologist hanging out with these hunter gatherers, and you know they're all walking around barefoot and stuff. This is decades ago, and so they have the bright idea because they're friends with these people. Like you, you know you know what going to help going to help these my friends out in this tribe. I'm going to gift them shoes. And mm. so brings all these shoes. Well, what did they do? They, they tied them around their waist so everyone could see that they had shoes. Like if they're on their feet, people might not notice these right. fancy shoes. They might get dirty they're, if they're yeah. on the ground, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And I was, I just came from, uh, I came from pickleball this morning. There's a, uh, there's this older woman there that used to do a, a bit of science. So we were talking one day. She was saying, um, uh, she she was saying how she did some. I forget if it was Peace Corps or something, but, but a similar thing where it was it was in like Iraq or the Middle East somewhere where where the U.S. was going in and just trying to build things all new from scratch in the mm-hmm. in the. In, in the American likeness. And right. she was like, no, we need to make use of what we have. Now. And, they're, and, and they're like, well, I don't know over here. They're, they're really like speaking of refrigerators. She goes, right. they're loving these refrigerators. They can't get enough of them. We keep sending refrigerators. They keep asking for more. And she's like, but they don't have electricity there. What are, so she went down to find out they liked the boxes Right. That the refrigerators yeah. were, were right were in. So it's uh, this is this is like this idea of uh, uh, of well meaning uh, right. like altruism and trying to. But but it's uh, I, I I've heard the idea of effective altruism being thrown right. around more here and there and and like where 
where is the money actually going? When I think a lot of people are privy to the idea now of like, well, certain charity organizations, 90% of it is going to pay the staff or whatever. 10% of right. it actually gets to the people that need it or whatever they're, they're proposing that they're doing. Right. Um, and so, so people are kind of aware of that, but I, I don't think people are uh, as aware of like just the n- numerous blind spots that yeah. uh, that we have in, in trying to help out other cultures. Well, this perfect example is when like living in the village in Zambia, there was an organization, uh, you know, nonprofit that that learned of the need for, um, for example, to have outhouses, to have latrines, because if you're just defecating in the forest, flies land on that and then fly over to your food and little kids now have some sort of contamination of a pathogen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're getting people sick that way. The risk is there. So it's less risky if you, you know, do your business in a hole in the ground and it's covered. Um, and so there was this idea that, Oh, it's not that much of an investment to build the trains. So let's send money out and we'll start with, uh, with the head man of the village. Because if, if someone in a position of power or position of status, we want people to see that, so that they then will copy that, right? It's like take the leader, the, the someone that people look up to, have them do it and model that behavior. And so they built, I think in every little village of the headman, they built this nice latrines, concrete with bricks and a nice metal roof and a door that has a little latch on it, right? A door that would close and it would seal up this little outhouse. And so because I lived there, they asked me to kind of go around to villages and see the progress of that. What's the status of our latrines that we're building or you know, program that we have? And, and I said, well, the latrines are built and they're very, very nice. And they said, that's great. We were successful. And I said, but you didn't ask the question about is anybody defecating in the latrine? And they said, oh, well, well, of course they are. I said, but of course they're not. I said, people are using these buildings to store their seeds, to store their fertilizers, to store their, their chemicals because it's a, it's a, it's a waterproof protected place that they can keep all of the animals and little children away from. They can lock the door, right? They said, this is a great little storage shed. All they did was put a little <laughs> hole. Like they covered up the hole in the floor so nothing yeah, would fall yeah. down. And it's a beautiful little shed. Uh, yeah. I said, so they're being used, but they're just not being used for the purpose that you intended. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's where those blind spots come in. And so it, it, there was an impact. Like there was probably a benefit in terms of survivability of the seeds for next year's planting, um, the survivability of some of their grain, sacks full of grain so that they were going to eat. So they probably had an impact on their food security in the long term, but it didn't have the impact in the public health sort of wash, you know, sanitation program that they wanted. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. 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 It so, happens a lot. It happens a lot. Dumb question for you. Go ahead. I get, yeah. I get stuff stuck in my head sometimes, and it's just going to bother me if I don't know. How deep is this outhouse hole? What are we talking? So when I where I lived in Zambia, it was probably maybe ten feet to the bottom. Ten feet. All right. Yeah, it wasn't far. Okay. Huh. Yeah. All it wasn't right. Too bad. Well, you yeah. throw like a little sawdust or something uh, down there over things, or you don't, no, you don't you even just... need to necessarily over time. You could ashes, but generally it's ash because you have leftover ashes from fires and things. So it's easy to just put your ashes down and it helps neutralize it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, when you were talking about waste earlier, it's just, uh, it, it is uh, that, that idea that nothing is waste potentially. 
but we we do right. we do treat a lot of things as waste and and it's it is really difficult to uh um oh who did i have on for the body farm episode that i oh, that right. one, the one health episode i'm so <laughs> bad with names three three months from now i'm going to be struggling to remember your name you're going to be right. you're going to be cabin guy who wears the suit um <laughs> Fair, and fair. I'll, I'll, but uh i'll speak highly of you but it, it won't have a name attached it. to it um i but anyway wonderful guest talk about the the body farm and what happens to uh body when it decomposes in the naturally out out in the wild and and mm. it's just uh, the the uh you're you're a forest guy. I know you're just a big fan of forests. You live mm-hmm. in the forest. Uh, I know just from our bit of conversation yesterday, and you have a four point six billion years of life on the planet. But plants and stuff, what do we got? Like a billion something years, right. and and you have then you have everything uh, has found. It's a little niche, and it's everything uh, the in right. the symbiotic relationship, and nothing goes to waste. And this thing craps somewhere, and something right. else eats it. This thing right. dies over here, and a bunch of things and worms eat it. Right, and Absolutely. then you have agriculture take off, and then the spread of human population starting uh, what agriculture around, around 20,000 years ago, really making an impact shortly after that. And, and right. then the, the spread of, of humans and now modern cities. And, and we are, uh, that's, that's a sliver of time by evolution standards. And so right. there is a lot of we talk about radioactive, uh, uh, you know, spills or whatever. There's just a, the Ukraine shelling of the, uh, you know, there's the radioactive, uh, the nuclear power the reactor, plant, yeah. the reactor scare there. And, and, uh, and th- this is, this is something that, uh, you know, takes, takes, thousands of years for evolution to naturally kind of for some critter or some species to make use of and figure out some way to monopolize this radioactive waste or whatever so so if if it's the case that uh say i happen to care about my life and the and the humans that live on this planet while i happen to exist here in the maybe 40 more years that i that I get it takes it's going to require quite a bit of human initiative to sort out uh, yeah, what yeah. to do with all this uh, new modern waste that evolution yeah, never saw coming. Right. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's just, it's one of the big questions we have. Right. And, and the, the thing about it is it's hard to get public buy-in sometimes because in order to come up with some solutions, you do need people to be very specifically addressing a maybe a very tiny, what seems to be a very tiny factor in this much larger issue. Um, and so I, I have, you know, neighbors and folks that I know that maybe have not been connected to a university and don't know much about the research side of things. And we'll say, you know, why, why do we have people studying, you know, the, the mating behavior of this tiny little beetle? Like what relevancy does that have? And why should the public be funding that at a public university. 
And you say, well, the reality is because maybe that tiny little beetle, we want to be able to interrupt its life cycle because it's a major pest for this particular crop that goes to feed people or animals that then go to feed people. Right. And so if we were able to change this and figure out a way to biologically kind of control the life cycle of this one insect, it might mean the lives of you know thousands of children in X country. Mm-hmm. And, and it's that being able to put that together in a coherent argument and a statement and, and, and people seeing that and go, Oh, okay. I, I understand that it, we're trying to solve this much bigger problem over here. And it's going to require these different questions and, and laboratory assessments and experiments and, to get to this larger, we need all those people doing these things to get to this larger solution to some of these, what, what we might've called like wicked problems, these larger, very complex issues that are, that, that apply to all of us, right? It's not just some tiny community somewhere that's dealing with this problem. It's we're trying to provide health and well-being for everyone. Right. And, and we, we agreed as nation states around the world, we all kind of came together decades ago and agreed that we would, you know, sharing goals, sharing some of these common goals for humanity, and that we will attempt to try to reduce hunger, get rid of poverty. We will try to help have quality education for everyone so that everyone can participate. We'll try to have a, you know, a, a, a useful and efficient economy. We'll have a sustainable infrastructure for transportation. I mean, we, we, we have these large goals that we've come up with as a world community. And we have indicators to follow them and try to measure them. But we happen to need all of these different entities and, and research institutes and, and, and scientists to look at some of these things. And because it, it all applies to these larger questions of how we're going to survive as a species. And I, and I think our, our discourse is often kind of confused. You'll hear people talk about, you know, we've got to save the planet as if somehow the planet's going to blow up. Right. Well, the, the, the planet itself as a, is you know, orbiting in space it isn't at risk of, you know, it, of it blowing up anytime soon. It's it's our ability to maintain a, high, a healthy lifestyle is what we're concerned about. Will humans be able to survive um, to the degree that we are now? I mean, we have these huge cities and communities all over the world and, you know, we're, we're doing it. We're, we're surviving. But are we doing it well enough? Right. And is everybody in the same situation, we'll know, we all know that there's inequality. There's a lot of differences in the way we survive. So how do we address that, right? What is it that we can do to address these things? We have to be able to think about it complex. You have to be able to understand all of the different factors that might go into it, but then we need people to, to, to study those factors and to come up with the, the next set of you know, best practices to try to help you know, solve some of these big challenges. Mm. I don't know. Some, some people, they don't think that that's a, it, that it's some people have a really negative view that it's we're too far gone. It's, there's no use. I don't care. I'm not going to put in any effort. I'm just going to think about my own self or my own little community. That's fine. But you know, we I think the pandemic helped highlight that we're all connected in a lot of ways more so than we wanted to believe or more so than we thought before. Um, but you know, even even just you know a, a small farmer it's growing soybeans in Middle America those prices are dictated by what's going on all over the world, not just that small farming community. So just helping people realize that the world's a large place that we're all, you know, we're all humans. We have the same basic needs. How do we go about addressing that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there is, there's a frustrating amount of, 
of uh of you know personal incredulity where where any anything that is is complex is is it's very easy it's easier just to write off as not important if things are complex listen i get it i deal with like computer (laughs) stuff all the time and there's like some new social media thing that i'm supposed to learn for my career or some stupid thing like that like oh my no I'm not going to. And then my career falls apart because I'm not keeping <laughs> up with whatever the new hip thing right. is or whatever. And and we we all do this. And and so it's easy it's easy for me to criticize when I when I love nerding out about say like all of my first of all, it's wonderful to hear it well, I already knew it, but it's wonderful for the listener to hear that my vast knowledge of of insect phalluses which i do have is not (laughs) going to waste it's not just some peculiar little hobby (laughs) this is i'm saving the planet absolutely Um, and and um and it's it i mean i i think that i think that if anything what i've what I've loved about doing these One Health episodes is that at least, even if people hear this complexity and are incredulous, they can at least be like, all right, that's complicated. Let's just hear, what do you need? Just, all right, do do yeah. your thing. It sounds like it's important, it, which right. is which is a lot better than the, there is straight up, uh, like a war against science, so, like the idea no. of, uh, I mean, you you brought up the why why would we need beetle mating research or what? And I right. hear I hear stuff like that when I blab about science. I see people's eyes roll back in their right. heads all the time, and and I've I've had I've had people that I respect that are intelligent people get furious when they hear about the uh, uh, a scientist lo- intentionally lost 17,000 wallets uh, around the world and this was funded by this and that thing right. like listen to the episode there's way more right. to it going on uh, right. than than that you have no idea the insights that were gained from it right. and and it actually infused money back into communities and all these right. other things in the process that you wouldn't think of and uh, and, and and you you see uh, people people love, uh, like uh, you know, Sarah Palin or something will get a hold of one of these studies. Of, uh, we're spending twenty five thousand dollars. Like, I know. and you hear that number, and you're like, "You're mad that they're spending twenty five. I'm mad that it's not a quarter of a million dollars right. that they're spending right. On, right. on that. I'm right. mad that they're only." I, I still to this day I'm furious. I had this episode. There's this woman I had on again. No chance I remember her name, but it was impactful. She studied uh, hearing cells. I've mentioned it several times on the show since. Hearing cell uh, 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 hair cells uh, for yep. for hearing in fish, and uh, years ago, uh, University of uh, Vancouver, Washington, uh, University of Washington, Vancouver. And, um, and, uh, uh, 
trying to figure out fi- fish hair cells. Don't uh, listeners don't get distracted that they're called hair cells. Uh, why someone named them that is it doesn't matter. They look like hairs. They're not hair. Um, <laughs> scientists just like to confuse us sometimes in the naming of things. They regenerate right. fish. Fish hair cells regenerate. They 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 have. Uh, you know, some loud thing happens or age or whatever happens underwater and these hair cells die off, they regenerate in fish. And humans, you you go to uh, uh, whatever, um, you know, that Guns and uh, Guns and Roses reunion tour or whatever, to, because you you remember liking loud music when you were twelve, and 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 now you're forty one, and realizing, oh, I actually don't like loud music that much anymore. But too late, you've lost a bunch of hair cells. And how do you figure out how these fish are regenerating their hair cells? Right. Uh, what What can you do to um, uh, uh, maybe um, maybe flip on a gene or something like that to change right. it to regenerate human uh, right. hearing? And incredible you, uh, deafness right. gone. She has like eight thousand dollars a year in funding for this project right, to right. solve deafness. Uh, eight thousand yeah, right. dollars a year. It's what? like some departments spend that on sandwiches it's, for like a luncheon. You know, it's it's not a lot of money, which is why I mean, it's hats off to some of these really dedicated people mm-hmm. that for very small funds are working long hours to try to solve some of these questions. Um, and, and the reality is, yeah, and some of them, if you, I think I tell people to ask questions, a lot of people that do research love to talk about what they're doing. And so I tell them, well, if you're, if you're that skeptical, why don't you ask them and like continue to ask questions about it? And they should be able to explain it to you and explain how it connects to these larger issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I have met folks that are like very in their lab and, and they can tell you the importance of their work to a point. And then they said, look, I don't know, I'm doing this. It goes beyond me. I'm not exactly sure how it all connects to these larger challenges, but I know that it does to some extent I'm contributing towards that. Great. Right. Like that's making some effort, but you, you're, you're hoping that people that are trying to do some of these things would have $80,000 a year, yeah, $800,000 a year. Right. And so, mm. cause you know, we, we do spend a lot of money on stuff. That's not that helpful for us as a species. Right. Um, and mm. so could we maybe spend a little bit more on things that are you know, some research that's trying to, trying to help. It's funny because people, you know, we ask these sort of hypothetical questions about what would you do if you won a million dollars? And I, I bet if you asked, I didn't do this survey, but I bet if you surveyed a bunch of academics and you asked them like, what would you do if you won a billion dollars and you never had to work again? I bet a lot of them would say that they would continue to do the research that they're doing. They just wouldn't have to worry about funding it. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's not something that people, people aren't doing it to get rich and famous. Right? They're doing it because they want to answer some questions that they have. They want to study this particular tree or organism or forest or community or economy or whatever. And so they're curious. They want to do that. And I think a lot of people would continue to do that. It's just a matter of like, why aren't we funding them more? It's good, serious work that they're doing. Yeah. Um, I, well, uh, I, I think uh, a lot of people listen to this show and, and, um, appreciate getting to hear about stuff that they wouldn't normally uh, get to hear about, but we even have um, we, we have a range of listeners from all sorts of backgrounds, ages, various. Some mm-hmm. scientists listen. Some people have never gone to college listen. 
um, and everything in between. Um, and and from this, I know I know I've I've had people write me because they are a grad student and get inspired by certain things, or they they choose a they stumbled on this in early on in college and helped navigate what they wanted to research, whatever else. I'm curious about the uh, your experience with the Peace Corps because mm. it seems like first off, how is there an age limit for joining the Peace Corps? Uh, no. no. And there's factors, people that retire and, and just go in to be volunteers for the Peace Corps. And that's kind of the retirement plan. Um, most of, I think most of people are, you know, post, post-college sort of twenties, early thirties. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's changing. I mean, now that we have much more digital tools and things, it's a little bit different. I think it's uh, like, it used to be pre-internet when I applied, you just sent in your application by mail and said you would, you pick a region of where you might want to go. So I, you know, you rank order them. And I'd had sub-Saharan Africa on there is where I wanted to go. And they invited me to a program on, on food and agricultural issues in Zambia. And I said, great, Zambia, I don't know much about it, but I'm, I'm into it. And so I, I went for it. But they, um, nowadays you can look specifically at programs in countries and you can apply for a specific country and a particular type of, like if you're, you want to work on health issues or you want to work on education issues or whatever that is, you can look it up. During the pandemic, there wasn't anybody doing anything. I mean, they had to close down like a lot of the government programs. But um, I think from what I hear, they're they're back up and running and looking to recruit people and send send people out. Um, but I, I recommend people looking into it. Programs like that. I mean, there's lots of different programs out there. But I feel like it's a good way to to just experience things that you wouldn't necessarily get to experience otherwise. It's it's different than going on holiday somewhere. It's different than doing a study abroad for two weeks or a month. Um, where you're embedded with certain institutions or universities or whatever. This is much more of a, we're going to get you out into a community. You're going to live there and stay there for an extended period of time, learn the local language, um, learn about the local culture. We want you to be a good ambassador for the U.S., much more of like a diplomatic type of a, a goal. Um, and so in that sense, uh, it gives you a, a really, a, a, you know, gives Americans a sense to live there on the ground and, and gain from that and learn about people so that when you come back, Right. And you're, you're working in a job that you're working in. You can always tell people. Right. So I'm always talking to students about what I learned by living in Zambia. I doubt the Zambians talk about me. I don't think they gain much from my experience, from my presence there. But uh, but I'm certainly still talking about the things that I learned and how it impacted my my choices in life. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I feel like that's probably true for a lot of people. And like every program, there's a lot of you know people disagree. There's people that don't think that government should be funding this kind of work and other people said they should be funding more of this type of work. And so there's a lot of different perspectives out there. Um, and I think that that's part of part of our role as research scientists is to ask some of those questions and say, well, what could we what kind of data could we actually get to show and measure the impact that these kinds of programs are having? Right. What would we need to do in a scientific way to have the data, sufficient data enough quality and quantity of data to, to make a, a legitimate analysis and, and come up with some recommendations of how to improve a program, right? It's real easy to criticize. It's a lot harder to be constructive in your criticism and come up with possible suggestions, right? Like it's easy to say, oh, I disagree with that whole program. Well, okay, but what would you do? Right? What are some suggestions of how you might change it, right? That's a lot harder for people to come up with. So I, I kind of say that to, to people. Look, I, I'm interested that you want to criticize. That's great. Criticize all you want, but like, 
I'm, I'm not really going to listen that much until you come up with like an alternative. Like you can say it's bad, but like what would your be what would be a, a solution for you? What would be some sort of recommendation? Let's get into the what are the actual changes that you want to see? Because it's really easy to say you don't like something and something's bad or whatever. But how do you how do you improve on it? And that's not always that's not always something that people do. Yeah, I I mean I I think that. I think we all get little glimpses of the importance of of this. Where I, I remember before I had traveled or done anything, I I worked three years in a furniture factory, even and mm-hmm. and just knowing, you know, you start just on a machine doing this one job, a uh, edge foiler. You're just putting right. you're putting the like fake paint on the edge of some piece and you learn this machine really well. And it's got like little imperfections, but you're getting you're getting paid by the amount you crank out. So you're like, yeah, I'll, I'll let that I'll let that one pass. Good enough. And then and then one day you go and work on the assembly line uh to pick up some extra hours or or whatever and then you see that piece in the assembled full product and you go oh i have been delivering some real garbage and now i understand why uh that that one uh, like making sure that one corner was okay was so important and why my supervisor was giving me grief or whatever and i and i'm i'm sure it didn't i didn't help that assembly team much being there i probably screwed up all sorts of things and got in their way but it did have the impact of me being able to bring back to my uh my other little job what would what would be valuable and deliver them a better uh end result for for very little uh time on my part of just it, it costs it costs uh much of life um the to me, the I, I think a lot of improvements in life, because most of these problems seem so big and unmanageable and complex, but uh, so so many things. It's amazing how much just bringing awareness to things mm-hmm. can uh, can solve. Because just on the little micro levels of how you behave or you know you get older and realize like oh man all those cigarettes that i threw out the window all all those butts like things like that that you just pick up on over time right that's one of the incredible things that that traveling uh does for you and i i think for for me it's one of the wonderful things of of having started this podcast and getting to uh, see so many different people in so many different disciplines and seeing how it starts to piece together over time. How would you recommend um, someone that uh, like, uh, so we, we have a listener, uh, you know, li- listeners to the show are, are uh, like I said, a, a range of uh, people and backgrounds, but all clearly curious about science or they wouldn't be here. Say people hear something about like this one health initiative and like, well, what can I do? What, uh, how can I be involved? Do you have any advice for just how people can just go about learning more things of this nature, being involved more in their community, exploring, um, uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just let you take it from there. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a, I guess it's a, 
an important question because I do think people get inspired and, and become curious about lots of different topics. And, and if it's something where it is solving a problem, um, you know, they, they want to figure out how they could be part of the solution. And I find that with a lot of young people, um, they will hear about a situation. They don't want to be part of the problem. They want to be part of the solution. What can they actually do? Um, I think there's a lot of different approaches. So I remember years ago, I, I read an article about uh, some conflict in, in a certain part of Africa and some of the atrocities that were going on and, and some of the ways that um, some of the medical conditions that resulted in some of the ways that the soldiers were behaving. And, and so there was just this article that was very graphic and very detailed and it explained the situation. Right. Um, and, and I presented that to a number of students and the response was very interesting because some responded by saying, I didn't read it all because it was uncomfortable. And so I didn't finish it. And then others were said, I, res- I read it all. And at the bottom where it said, you know, for more information, contact and I contacted them. Right. And so I, I think that sometimes the information is there and there are ways there, there's things out there for ways to get involved. It comes down to sometimes people's interest and interest in addressing or confronting things that are uncomfortable. Right. I, I don't ever expect anybody to have a pleasurable time talking about children starving. Right. That's not supposed to be a topic where we're having a good laugh, where it's like, I feel fun. Right. That's that's not something that uh, if you if you do have those kinds of emotional reactions, there might be something going on with you because it's not a fun topic and it is serious. And so, you know, being able to just go going into it, knowing that, hey, this is going to be uncomfortable. These topics, are they're not fun. Um, but knowing that I think helps people address or like at least be prepared for having those conversations. Right. And it gets us past that uncomfortableness to the point where we can start to even think about what solutions might be. Right. And then part of, I think the other problem is if it's new to you, that doesn't necessarily mean it's new to other people. Right. And so, so often people will be presented with sort of a new idea and they'll think about it. It'll impact them. They'll be thinking about it. You go, you know what? I had this idea. And you go like, well, that's great. And I'm glad that you had that idea. And I'm glad you were presented with this topic, but lots of people for a lot of years have also been dedicating their lives to studying this topic. And so for you to come in and be like, hey, I thought of this thing. This is the answer. Well, why not approach it with a little bit more humility in the sense that I've been thinking about this topic. Who else is thinking about it? Who else has talked about it? What else has been done? Right. And, and most of the, the, the research that we do is publicly available. Right. It's out there. I mean, get online and look some of the stuff up. Yeah. A lot of the journals and things, you don't have access to the whole article, but the abstracts are free to everyone. Right. If you want to go find out some research on a particular topic, right, the science, it's it's published. Our whole job is to to do these experiments and then to write those results up and get it out there so that the public can see them. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and and we don't get paid to, to do that. Like, I don't get paid for writing something. If we publish something, it's not like I get a, a, it's not like writing a book where you're selling the book and getting a royalty. You're not we're not doing it for the money. We're doing it so that our results are out there so people can have a conversation with us about what we're learning. And I mean, it's, it's interesting that, that a lot of that doesn't like it, it is out there, but whether or not anybody ever looks into that or not, it's, it's, I think, I think we could do a better job as people of like looking into 
what's actually being done instead of just saying, hey, I've got this great idea. Have we ever thought about you know, whatever this thing is? And it's like, yeah, there's whole departments dedicated to that very topic that have been doing it for decades. So oh, yeah. Eight why years. Don't you check it out? I've had eight years now of like, my, where I'm like, I think I solved it. I think I solved all of life. And then uh, here's my idea. And then I, but uh, you know, I'm fortunate with this that I can reach. I do. I I reach out to people. I'm like, well, who would actually know a lot about that and then reach out to them. And then very rarely does someone be like, Oh, that's interesting. We could, it's, it's pretty much always, no matter how clever I thought the idea was, someone always thought it was just delightful. It's it's also in, in, and that's, I mean, I guess it can be a little humbling, but it's, it's also, it's also, it is, it's still validating to know if you were on the right track. Like, Oh, wow. There was a whole, there's a whole department just for that idea. At least it wasn't right. good. It, like it's right. better than hearing, nah, that's a shit idea. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah. There's, I, I, I guess the other side of it um, too is, is that uh, the, the other side of the coin is you learn something new and then you have the, uh, uh, the, the curse of knowledge where now you're just like furious that everyone else doesn't know the thing that you just learned your, your, right, right. yourself. Like, why don't people get it? It's right there. Right. It's so clear. Right. It's easy. Right. And so like fi- finding ways of, of communicating that it, it, it's, it does. I, I don't know um, if, if, uh, how easy it is to get involved on on just a, a local level or whatever what what can be done in term because there's there is such a disconnect and something that comes to mind um uh there's there's uh let's see Tracy Finar I've had her on a couple times boom remembered her name she yeah. uh, uh a lot of marine biology stuff but she she did a lot of florida red tide um uh work so you have these algae plume blooms plumes something like that blooms yeah blooms thank you and uh, and a lot of it's uh you have like people in areas where i'm at in wisconsin on on the mississippi uh fertilizer running off into the rivers get it going into the gulf um uh increasing these blooms that then um, are impacting the local fishermen there. It's causing respiratory issues with people. It's killing off sea life and, and, uh, and the, the algae grows and grows and grows. And then it all dies off at once and just sucks all the oxygen out and all this crap dies. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's, and it's, it's because of all the fertilizer runoff, it's, it's unnatural compared to, uh, natural is a fickle word, but it, it's, it's, the human impact of it right. has has uh, increased what would have normally uh, been happening uh, without humans to a, a kind of uh, uh, to a degree that it's having this big impact. Well, the the reason why I bring it up is the solutions are 
you know, having new irrigation and like kind of gutter systems and stuff. So that's the fertilizer is not running. That's, you know, one of the many solutions, but try explaining that to a farmer that's like trying to get by and now, Hey, can you throw in? I have no idea how much this costs is like, I, uh, I, I'm not the type that goes off collecting dead wood and drying it and say things, things have, Cost is uh, imaginary to me, but say you're uh, you're asking a farmer to pay eighty thousand dollars or something right. like that to do something that they don't under, they've never heard of this. What's this algae situation in the Gulf? Or like, why would I? I, I the Gulf's I, far away from where you are. So exactly. They may never go there, right? You never go there. I've I care about the planet and human impact. I've never been asked to pony up $80,000 of my business money. So you, you clearly need oversight and the government stepping in and, and, uh, and using, you know, unfortunately taxpayers dollars to manage these larger, uh, issues. And so how do you get people involved in, and just educating the, uh, the, uh, the local populations on why these sorts of changes are important, even if they don't see the impact with their own eyes. Right. We often refer to trade-offs that exist because sometimes, you know, a solution for one might not be a solution for another. And so what might, what's the balance, right? What if, what if, so uh, just coming back from Guatemala and there, there's large sugarcane plantations there, they use a lot of water. Um, there's not a lot of regulation in how much water they can use. And so they're using a lot and that affects people downstream, you know, and their water use and availability. But it also has impacts in other ways in the environment. For example, is how do you harvest sugarcane? It's very tall. It's very dense. It has a lot of under leaves that are, that are very difficult to walk through. Plus what lives in a big sugarcane field, mice and snakes. And so you have workers that are going to be walking through these big sugarcane plantations to cut it, but they don't want to deal with snakes. And so it's easier to burn out all that undergrowth and burn all those leaves off and then harvest. But that creates a lot of smoke. And so then you have respiratory problems with people living in the cities from all of these sugarcane plantations. And so you say, okay, so there's these water impacts. There's this air impacts to the people themselves. And they say, well, what are the solutions? Well, one solution would be to use mechanization, use tractors. So don't burn and just use tractors to harvest it. Great. But now you don't need 20,000 employees to come cut your sugarcane anymore because you have a tractor. Right? So the trade-offs that you not, there's not as much employment for poor rural families, but you're able to not burn all the sugarcane and it, your air quality is better. And so what, what's, you know, in the long scheme, like what, what's the benefits? It's not a benefit to these guys, but it's a benefit to all these people. And so how do you square that? And how do you, how do you work on that in a balanced sense? And because there are trade-offs and no, I don't have an answer to that, except that we see those longer term impacts because then you have groups of people that don't have any employment options anymore. And so you're putting more constraints on them. And so the, option of migrating to the north seems a lot better when they don't have any other options at home. And then you have people in Tennessee talking about what they see as a migrant problem, right? And you're saying, well, right, but it, that's also stemming from the fact that there's sugar cane being produced for sugar that you consume every day. 
So how do we work all those factors in together in an appropriate way to address the larger context of this? Do we eat less sugar? And so the less is produced, but then it's employing less people. And it's, so there's all of these impacts across lots of factors that are, that are going to be involved. Mm. Right. And I don't have an answer to that. That's why they're complex problems because they're complex and, and they have a lot of things going on and it's not going to be, and I, what I really don't like is I don't like when people say they just need this thing. And it's always like the one answer, right? It's like, Oh, they just need, whenever I hear somebody say that they just need, I'm always like, Oh, <laughs> here it comes. It's the solution for all of these big problems. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, the silver bullets. Right. And you, come yeah. on folks. It's not, that might be one part of it. Sure. And you can, yeah suggested but like there's lots of other things going on too yeah yeah i i mean there there's certainly um uh, just actually knowing what the problems are and acknowledging that they're there and being right. aware of them is right. is a huge step toward i mean certainly there's no chance of finding any solution without the knowledge that there is a problem, problem. that we yeah. need a solution for so that's exactly at least an important aspect um, of it. So, oh. so even even when some of this stuff seems like too depressing because it seems too big or complex or hopeless or or whatever, right. I, I it's still just uh, I I think you kind of sort of mentioned earlier, just kind of gently moving toward that uh, that uh, that uncomfortable uh, feeling and and yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not a problem to be uncomfortable, right? And yeah. I think it's something that we need to recognize. If you're going to be talking about starving people, it's not going to be fun. It's not very, it's not very comfortable of a topic. Yeah. Um, and so what? That's fine. It doesn't have to be comfortable. We can still address it, right? Still talk about it. But on the other side, it's like, well, you can get involved. There are lots of different local organizations and mechanisms by way in which people can get involved in these topics. Um, it's more about the desire, right? In the moment when we're having a conversation about it, it seems like urgent. It seems you know emotionally engaging. Um, but sitting in budget meetings at a town hall meeting to try to understand how your local county is going to do something, that's boring, right? Nobody likes that kind of stuff. And so we don't go to those. I'd rather be home watching TV or whatever, you know, watching my shows, doing something than I am going to be spending my time sitting down at the, this little you know community meeting trying to address food security in my local county, right? Because that's not as interesting as talking about talking about it and having it, you know, being engaging in, in the moment. Um, you can get involved. Everybody can read the research that's out there. They can talk to the organizations that are trying to implement solutions. They're, they're begging for people to come participate. They want people to come volunteer. Now, if you're trying to do it as a career, that's a different question because there's only limited funding. And so, you know, you may not end up having a lucrative job working for some small county organization, trying to understand the local water system, right? But doesn't mean you can't get involved. Doesn't mean they're not looking for volunteers and people that are willing and interested. When I participated with a number of conservation organizations, and it's we're in never at any risk of being bombarded with too many people. It's the opposite, right? It's like we have to compete with all of these other really fun and exciting topics that are at your fingertips online. You can stream and watch everything. And so we're TV competing so with good. that. It's right. And so it's like you have to compete with that <laughs> for people's time. I say, well, if you're willing to use some of your time to get involved in some of these things, do it, right? It's out there. It's not, a, it's not that hard. It's just, you really, it's about matter of how much time you want to put into it. 
You you uh you watching TV in this cabin, yours? I don't have anything like that in the Amazing. Cabins. I don't. That's, yeah. if, if that's not a selling point for living in a cabin, <laughs> man, I don't know what is. Oh, yeah. Get it. Get it. Get it. <laughs> uh, I, I I never miss TV when I'm not consuming it. Never. Right? Uh, it's yeah. just when I'm consuming it, then I can't get enough. Well, it only I, has impacts on social life, really. Like it doesn't, if you stop watching TV, it, it doesn't really impact you personally. It's only when you're trying to talk to people that watch a lot of TV, does it have a, an impact? Because you just yeah, don't, know, those, you don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> those conversations, I have plenty of conversations about TV. They're pretty shallow, you know, they, <laughs> right. they, they don't, they don't. There's not a lot of meat on the bone of right. like what's going to happen on the next episode. You right. know, it's, it's it makes for okay water cooler talk, sure. mostly because it's brief and right. uh, yeah. and and everyone can be on the same page. But conversations like this, I think, are are ones that are more stimulating. And I I think it would I would love to live in a world where where more people were interested in uh, just having bigger conversations sure. uh, and. And so, yeah, I, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate what you do. I can't wait to come and visit your cabin one day. Dude, definitely. Uh, I, uh, and, um, yeah, by the way, life hack, everybody, if you, if you see that abstract and you really want the paper, I generally find if you go to the author's oh, site, yeah. you'll, you'll usually be able to get access from their site. There's a bunch and, of other little tricks like that. Too. Sure. Well, and we have, because we write them, we have them, right? I have a PDF file and so yeah. I can send it to anybody I want. So yeah. it's not that you know, I've often just directly email the author and say, Hey, can you, can I have a copy of that? And they're like, sure. Yeah. Here you go. Right. So yeah, of course. It's so, out there. So yeah, it, it doesn't take that much uh, extra effort if if you're interested enough. Also, uh, you can go to onehealth.tennessee.edu to yep. learn more about the University of Tennessee as One Health Initiative and uh, the the uniting um, disciplines to protect and promote health of all life on earth and uh dave thank you so much for joining me today hey thank you very much for having me it's great to talk yeah and thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people we'll talk with you more next week